0: Chair. We're so glad to have you join us here on the Back Porch Education Podcast. For the next half hour or so, we're going to talk about all things educational. It's a wonderful day to learn something. Glad you could join us.
1: Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. I'm Jason here with Steve once again coming to you from the back porch. And I'm going to start today's episode by telling you that we're going to be talking about the one and the many today. But as always, let's start with a poem. This one is by Owen Barfield, although it's written pseudonymously. Uh, the pen name is G.A.L. Virgin, and the title of the poem is Cosmetics. Only the artist can divine, beneath her accident's pure nature, crystal in rock, or gold in mine, behind the mask, the living feature. The truth once caught, he bids it stay, and how he scrapes and how he bothers until the dross all purged away, it's extant for himself and others. So, in those days before I won, some slight concessions, with a sonnet, when our acquaintance scarce begun, your face had still more paint upon it, let it be blushed through north and south, that I'm the man, I take much credit, who, past that gash you called your mouth, still saw your lips, your face, and read it. Could my poor songs avail but this? To teach your heart how ill they merit insult, by overemphasis your dear, dear beauty and high spirit? What if between you and your glass they crept one day? Oh, not to upbraid, I would have you whisper. What I pass must not demean, so praised a lady. You taunt me with old-fashioned, quaint. No, not a whit. I'm not so petty. My dear, it's charming to see paint, but much more charming to see Betty.
0: All right. What do you think, Steve? That's a poem I think most ladies should enjoy having read to them. Yeah, it's a nice one. I like it. And it's a great lead-in to our topic today. Greeks, a long time ago, started talking about the fact that There is the collective, there is the whole, there is the forest, and intention to it is all the trees. And I think that this notion of the one and the many, as they put it, this conversation about singularity and multiplicity, uh, unity and diversity, whatever terms you want to use, it's that same old problem that they discuss so much. And that I think has a fair amount uh, said about it in the scriptures and a fair amount said about it throughout Western civilization is, is a problem worth discussing in the context of education because I think it, there's, a, there's a lot to it in the teacher and the classroom, in the curriculum, in the notion of university. That it's supposed to be a singularity, and yet it's got all these departments that are fighting with one another and so on mm, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and so to, to, to kind of help define this issue, uh, I'm going to lean on the back of old uh, R.J. Rushduni. Ruzas never wrote a short anything in his life. But but he had this to say in defining not just this problem, but the but the places it will take us. Uh, In an article he wrote called Philosophy, the Problem of the One and the Many, Um, here's how he explains the problem. He he says a lot of people uh, fall into problems by not dealing with this, And and he says the avoidance of the problem makes necessary a few elementary definitions as a prelude to our discussion. The one refers not to a number, but to unity. And oneness, in metaphysics, it has usually meant the absolute, the supreme idea, uh, in particular for Plato, the universe for Parmenides, being as such for Plotinus and so on. They all had their way of saying the singularity, the, the the one. The one can be a separate whole, or it can be the sum of things in their analytic or synthetic wholeness. That is, it can be a transcendent one, which is the ground of all being, or it can be an immanent one. The many, problem is the one and the many, so the many refers to the particularity or individuality of things. The universe is full of a multitude of beings. Is the truth concerning them Inherent in their individuality, or is it in their basic oneness or unity? If it is their individuality, if the if the basic center of the universe is each individual, then the many are ultimate and become the proper source of authority. If the whole universe is about each of us individually, then we become each our own authority, is saying, and have then have what we would call philosophically nominalism, where everything is itself, and any term we put on it is just mm-hmm. a name that we've given to it without much meaning apart from the individual self. If it is their oneness, however, then the one is ultimate, and we have what philosophies come to call realism, Plato's probably the best single unified proclaimer of the one over the many.
1: Right. Okay, so Plato is a realist. Do we have, like, an example, uh, a famous example of a nominalist, just (laughs) to kind of concrete it?
0: Uh, I'm sure they exist, but the the problem is this, that that taken to an extreme, nominalism is silly enough— Mm-hmm. You know, we can't even use the word "door" because every door is its own doorness.
1: Right, right.
0: That—that that I don't think anybody's made a big name off of strict nominalism because they come across silly. Okay. But okay. But if your bent is still towards the unique individuality of all things, you've got Rousseau. Mm-hmm. I think you've got a number of modern educators who are quite happy to take the the pizza crust and leave all the toppings to the nominalists who want to get crazy, but still take that basic vehicle of individuality right. of the many as imminent as the authority and say, rather than this mm-hmm. thing out here, this one Aristotle's immovable mover being the, the thing the authority uh many today embrace the notion that well the 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 only real authority in my life is what i say
1: sure <laughs> and that would be like a nominalist taken to the extreme or pretty far down the road of nominalism
0: well y- y- not the silly nominalism where i can't call anything by anything but but the relativism right. that is inherent in that in, in my opinion untoward emphasis because sure. the Greeks recognize that it's very difficult to pitch either one of these uh-huh. you, you you know you, you've got an arm wrestling match going on here is the one more important than the many is the many more important than the one it almost you, you've got that great movie moment right in I forget I think it's the wrath of Khan one of those old Star Trek movies and I haven't seen it. you've got the logician uh, Spock explaining that sometimes the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many, and other times the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. So Spock is going to kill himself by going in and fixing the warp drive, the nuclear radiation of which is going to melt his face or whatever. And, and he explains to Jim that so, the need...
1: one second there, one second. There's a Star Trek character named Jim. Yeah.
0: Captain James T. Kirk. I didn't know that. Oh, my goodness. We, we have to do a podcast now on – well, we don't want to turn into Comic-Con, <laughs> but it there's only like three seasons. Yeah,
1: I know. All my friends tell me there are lessons there. Man, but, go uh.
0: get your Netflix on and do the Star Trek thing. Well, anyway, so, so a little bit later in uh, the series of movies, then the whole ship or, or all of his friends set about to save Spock – and turn it and say the needs they actually say the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many but they're flipping the greek mm-hmm. notion okay the one is the collective the, the the whole right and and the many are the individuals uh in this case right. spock
1: so let's let's put some skin on this real fast before we go to break because i'm okay the star trek example is helpful to me because there's examples of one and many I'm seeing other examples, too, like the student and the class yep. or the teacher and the faculty. Faculty. Thank you very much. Um, or the, oh, I don't know, the citizen and the democracy or the state, right. I guess.
0: Right. That sort so, of thing. So, the, once the Greeks identified the problem, it started springing up all over the place. Okay. And, and, and in a situation like education, does the teacher get all caught up in the singularities of the individual lesson right. and forget that they're walking through a forest? Or are they so abstract and so up in the air that that the kids never can figure out what they're talking about because they keep mm-hmm. going from abstraction to abstraction? Let's go there after this break and, and try and draw this down into the classroom, talk about what realists and nominalists look like in the classroom. Hey, during this brief break, I wanted to encourage you to use the share buttons we have on our website in order to help us get folks tuned into the show. Our goal is to encourage as many educators, homeschoolers, NFL punters, and donut makers as we can with these podcasts. So help us get the word out. Share our Facebook page, send folks a link to one of your favorite episodes, do whatever you can to help us share this craziness with either your best friends or, if it's more appropriate, your worst enemies. We will love you all the more for sharing our love. Thanks. And now, back to the show. So, as we come back, we've built this problem, this general life-informing problem that there is, there is unity and diversity in life. And now we're going to try and bring it down into the classroom. Uh, I'm going to focus on the teacher and say that there are teachers whose emphasis is on the big picture. They're constantly talking about the principles, the ideals, often calling students to ideals. Now, the the perfect math student would solve the problem in this way, um, which can be a little off-putting to some students because... Well, I'm never going to be the ideal, Uh, Uh, but in particular tends to be, it's it's just hard to constantly think in ideals and in big types, in abstractions. We'd love to do it as Americans. We talk all the time about the economy, which, if you stop and think about it, doesn't exist. Right. It is just a collection of all of the economies, the individual households in (laughs) America— Now they're all kind of collectively performing. There is not this thing out there called the economy that we could take a wrench to and really get it humming if we got it tuned right. It's it's the collected unity of all of the individualities. Okay. And so so in the classroom, back to the classroom, certainly math is really cool, but only in the sense that I can break it down into individual principles. Uh, The the forest of math only makes sense by the trees of addition, subtraction, uh, uh, you know, the principles that are at play in mathematics. There are, of course, those who then go the other direction and spend so much time on all the details that it's just like one continuous game of trivial pursuit. I'm not sure how this thing that I just learned is connected in any way to anything else. And that's a problem as well. That brings about a fragmented mind and a fragmented life. I passed the test, but I don't know what to do with all this stuff. Right.
1: Okay. So let me me kind of make sure I'm understanding nominalism or the many would be the teacher who emphasizes over and over the minutiae of the topic. Let's just stick with math and is constantly drawing attention to exactly how to do whatever, the Pythagorean theorem, or exactly how to work with squaring numbers, but never shows that concept or never identifies all of those instances of that concept as the concept itself. So the kids are doing the activity over and over and over, but they haven't been shown the concept outside of examples maybe
0: well and often very specific so a student taught by a terrible nominalist uh, an extreme nominalist uh, let's use the word we used earlier a silly nominalist okay their student can't do anything if they haven't already shown them how to do it
1: okay and they even though if they have us all the skills required to solve a problem if the problem looks different they won't know how to apply the skills that they have. Right.
0: It, it just looks like this. They,
1: they, they won't know to ex, to uh, apply them.
0: Right. And 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 okay. so we often see really bright mimics. Okay. In class, you put them up at the board, and, and I'm I got to admit, you know, you're making me uncomfortable, forcing me to stick with a math. i'd much rather go over the humanities (laughs) but the math students brought to the board and as long as it's clear in his mind that what the teacher just did and this new problem are the same so all i got to do is the same thing they're fine okay but if you try and get them to then take that and somehow apply it a little differently or to real life (laughs) it's lost on them they don't realize that it's similar okay it's got to be the same so, in order for it to get the sameness. Okay, And over with a quote-unquote silly realist, well, everything is about mathematical principles. And they, again, find it difficult to perform because they're caught up in abstractions. They love math, uh-huh. but they can't do it because they can't get any right. particular problem out of all of the generalizations running around in their head.
1: So they understand calculus, but they can't get the answer because they don't know their multiplication tables. Uh, that'd, that'd be, I mean, that's super silly right. realism. And
0: and that's okay. the problem here. I want to be clear with our listeners, if that's even possible at this point in the in the discussion, it's not either or, it's a, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a question of emphasis so that, the teacher whose bent is towards the one has to, with self awareness, keep bringing themselves back in their planning and their thinking and their assessment in their interaction with the students to the many, because right. they, they have this bent. I don't. I'm not, I'm not even willing to say it's a a problem per se. It's just a proclivity. And 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 vice versa is true as well. If you know that you tend to get all lost in the details, you got to keep reminding yourself and your students that there is a big picture here.
1: So let me break in here with this. I I think that I have heard about this distinction or this problem my entire life going through school. And the terms that I uh, was introduced to for this problem were book smart and common sense, right? So the book smart student is the one who knows all of the facts and figures, but can't see it applied. And the common sense student is the one who has that bent toward using the information in, in real life, I guess.
0: And I don't know that that's a bad way to look at it. Again, it's, It's a principle that's oily.
1: Right, yeah. It's elusive.
0: I don't know that we're going to hug it down to the ground and say, oh, that's the perfect example of it, because it's informing every example. Right,
1: I'm being too nominalist right now. Is that what you're telling me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I'm saying that there is a mysterious power to this thought that the Greeks had. Mm -hmm. And they applied it politically. We, we do this this is a common form yeah. of the one in the many you know is it better to have the king or everybody with equal power well we know there's problems with both of those but sure the the, the, the principal notion that I'm in a constant tug of war over the one in the many the, the the big picture and the mm-hmm. small the forest and the trees the guy who can figure it all out with common sense versus <laughs> the guy who's highly informed by others, um, the, the fix-it man and the the walking Encyclopedia sure. Brown type guy, the, the the beauty of it is that life demands that there be all of this. not Not that one or the other of these is to be preferred, but there are times when the abstraction is what's needed and there's times when the singularity is what's needed. They're both useful.
1: Right. Did I cut you off, Steve? Earlier, you told us about how the realists, like in the classroom, would be emphasizing ideals and calling students to something higher, uh, talking about the ideal student. Did you talk about the the teacher who emphasized the many?
0: Well, I probably didn't. And let's 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 get that in uh, there. I don't want to shortchange them. Yeah. I don't want to pretend that knowing that I'm one of these two by proclivity, I don't want to negate the other one by any means. Part of the one and the many is the fact that in a school, part of the difficulty of homeschooling is that there's but one teacher, maybe two at the most. In a school where you've got a group of colleagues, this tension is just beautiful because they pull and tug and and prod one another into all being better as a whole than they would be in any way separately. So the one emphasizes ideals, etc., The the many the one who's bent is towards the Mm -hmm. particularities, then is the is the is the fact man right he can he can tell you the weights and measures and dates and places and so on okay and wants students often to be themselves to find their passions to to be their own individual Uh, there's usually a high amount of emphasis on creativity you know a lot of journaling and that sort of thing and they like things where the right. where the realists tend to want to bring all students into the form all good writers write this way those who emphasize the many are are constantly pushing kids to think outside the box try something new come at this from a whole different angle well you know some writers might do it this way but but hey i think it's pretty cool that you go this totally other different direction but when we come back i think putting this together so that every teacher could benefit from all of this rather than half of it probably where we want to head while this show is a back porch discussion it does cost a little bit of money so if you're liking what you hear consider helping us out you can simply use the donation button on the website to send along a one-time gift or we have subscriber plans for those who want to commit to regular support subscribers can get premium rewards depending on how nice a chair you pull up on the porch We have everywhere from sitting on the floor to our finest rocking chair available. But whatever you can do, know that it helps us keep the conversation going. And for that, we heartily thank you.
1: Okay, so Steve, as you were talking about the one, the many different examples of each, I realized what I was trying to do was I was trying to take the letters and the numbers or the the arts and the sciences and put them in each category right so like i was trying to say oh the one those are you know the arts people who like letters the many that's like number people and math people and science people but then i started realizing actually no no that's not it at all because it almost seems like it could go the other way and the many are those who are after letters and poetry and that sort of thing and the one that big concept that's what all the math guys and girls are chasing i and i guess this is it right this is the tension that we're supposed to feel this is the principle that we see over and over in all different kinds of places and ways is that right
0: yeah well let me ask you a question let's see if this clarifies for you and for the listeners sure we're christians yes do we have one god or three
1: we have one god in three persons
0: is that in any way related to the problem of the one and the middle
1: <laughs> oh uh, i see what you did there okay so yeah it is of course
0: we spend forever defending ourselves as monotheists we're not the greeks with the multiplicity of gods Yep. All warring and throwing human beings at each other and around the world. Right. We serve the one true and living God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes. Well, immediately. So we go, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's three gods. Right. And, and our understanding, the mystery that defies, you know, this is back to the frustration we had in the third, second segment. There is no picture that perfectly pulls this off. Mm -hmm. You know, we do the stuff with the egg, and we do the stuff with the three-leaf clover, and you've probably heard all the attempts uh, over the years by great theologians to try and show the unity and yet individuality of the Godhead. Yes. And in the end, there is this truth that says yes to both. (laughs) You can't pick one. You're a heretic. Go in either extreme. It's just one God, and there is no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just God. Uh, And then you get into, you know, process theology and all. No. Right. There's a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. It's in the scriptures. We can see it. Oh, but they're one God. And to go much further than that. (laughs) Right. And that right there, they
1: are one. Yes. Right. They are one. They, plural, are plural, one singular. But that's what we have to say if we're going to be. Be faithful
0: Christians. And so in theology, which I think is providing us with the right way of talking about this, semantics, we, we talk about antithesis, that that there is this proper tension okay. between two truths that are both true, and it just seems irreconcilable, but we know they're both true. And so by faith, we accept them. And in the case of teaching, yeah, we kind of we the one and the many, and the nominalism, realism. We all ha, kind of have our personality at play here. Some of us are big picture people, and some of us are the detail people. And God bless us for both. the The detail oriented person needs to constantly be pulling himself back towards the big picture, and vice versa.
1: Good. So I'm kind of thinking of two different guys here. I'm thinking of. First, Chesterton, who likes to draw a distinction between the poet and the logician, right? So the poet is always trying to reach up into the, or to see up into the heavens. And the logician is trying to cram the heaven into his head. And so I think that's a a picture of that. And from there, I really want to go to A book that I just got done reading, sort of ringing in my ears, Owen Barfield in his book, Poetic Diction, is it sounds to me like he's taking this exact principle that you're talking about and he is applying it to language. So in it, he's talking about there are those who are trying to just see the big picture And then there are those who are trying to define things and they work against each other. He has the image of two buckets in a well, one going up and the other going down. And he talks about, and I think this is where we're headed, when those buckets meet in the middle, that is the best time of language, right? For for that Mm -hmm. language, that's the best historical period because you have, it sounds like, a balance of the one and the many, or the seeing and the defining.
0: Yeah, when the thing that I'm resisting being particular, because I'm in love with the abstraction, love meets Betty, <laughs> you know, from your, right. from your yeah, poem. Exactly. I know that there's an abstractive process of painting yourself up to look the ideal. And God bless you, the better you do that. But Betty, I love Betty. Right. And Betty's down. I know Betty's beneath yeah. that paint, and I can appreciate the artistry, but it's Betty I'm in love with. And, and what that looks like in the classroom, I know I expressed my concern about going over into the math field, but math's where I see it a lot. As, as someone who interviews students trying to get into our private school. Okay. Or talks with teachers I often hear this, well, they, they're just not a math student. They're just not a math person. And almost immediately, and I have to admit to this, my mind says, well, they've been taught math poorly. Right. We're all math people. We live in a world of math. Mm-hmm. Number articulates our entire being. Right. So uh, practical implications, I think, how much of education is about the group Coming together to figure this out and how much of it is is purely on the shoulders of the individual student is a great way to think about this. Cause cause the cause both, right? The, the best experience is both collaborative and individual. In fact, the collaborative is going to hate it if the individual isn't showing up, right? He's just sitting back and letting everybody else do the work and not putting anything into it. He's not really benefiting from either individual mm-hmm. or collaborative education. He's he's out, you know. But when you've got a collaborative group where each individual is trying to figure it out, right. but synergistically they're unifying themselves into a better answer than any one of them could get, well, that's that's awesome. Teachers standing back from that going, oh, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> so when I'm teaching a student and I'm dealing with who I am and who they are in this great tension of the one of the many, right. I, I find it very Powerful to remember that I am trying to bring them to particularity, to know themselves well, to examine themselves, for only then is life worth living. Uh, And then uh, bringing them into harmony with things outside themselves. And you regularly meet students who either don't know themselves at all or are so into themselves that they don't know any – they just don't think anybody else exists. And that tension that bungee cord that's pulling them towards unity with the fellow man and intimate knowledge of themselves. There are classrooms that promote that tension, and there are classrooms that ignore it, in my opinion, to their peril.
1: Good. So let's end with, with this. I, I want to say before we go, know which way you are bent in this issue. Do you tend toward the concrete or the abstract? And then start to identify that in your students as well. Always remembering that a good teacher is going to use that to great effect. If if your student is wanting examples, then give them examples. But then also you can flip and challenge them, right? So if they're always, if a student's bent is toward the many, great. Use that to help them, but then also, challenge them to, to also build the muscle of the one, because I think, like you said, we really want to be after both of them and we want to be proficient
0: in each. Yep. I think you've left with the perfect analogy and that of the gymnasium, right? To go back to the Greeks that you need your cardio Mm -hmm. and you need your muscle building and you neglect either of those. You're not in shape, be realistic and nominalistic Mm -hmm. all at the same time, find that middle ground and and enjoy your class a lot more. I think the more you see the forest and the trees, the, the, the happier you're going to be.
1: Good stuff. All right. Well, thanks, guys. We'll talk to you next time.
0: Well, thanks again for joining us in this great conversation about education. We hope you will not just listen, but participate. Leave us a comment, suggestion, or thought on our website. You just never know when we'll use it on the show. Until next time, pursue joy and learn something.